Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Would you take your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of John? If you're new to the Bible, the Gospel of John is found on the right-hand side of the middle of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you'd open it to John chapter 10, as we look at a Bible study that I've entitled, Sheep Hear Their Shepherd's Voice. Sheep Hear Their Shepherd's Voice. Now, in order to understand chapter 10, we're kind of dropping in to the middle of John's gospel. And in order to understand the significance of chapter 10, like if we were studying John verse by verse, we would have just finished chapter 9. And chapter 9 is both a sad chapter and a very encouraging chapter. Because it's in chapter 9, you remember, a man that was born blind was healed by Jesus. Something that was really ugly was redeemed by Jesus Christ, forever eternally changed. This man that was born blind from birth was healed. And what a glorious day this was meant to be. A glorious day that was meant to be like, I mean, this is amazing, physically blind, and now he sees. His testimony was, I was blind, now I see. And we actually use his testimony to describe our lives in a spiritual. For him, it was physical and spiritual. For us, it's spiritual. That we were blind, unable to see and understand the love and mercy and forgiveness of God. But now, being born again, we can see. Notice with me, pick up in John 9, just by way of context, in verse 34. John chapter 9, verse 34. It says, They, they answered and said to him, you were completely born in sins. And you are teaching us. So this is the religious rulers of the day speaking to this man that can see now. And they're upset. They're mad. That, they're the problem in chapter 9. Blindness wasn't the problem. The man that was healed wasn't the problem. Jesus wasn't the problem. The problem were these teachers that were misrepresenting God. So they, they confront him and they go, man, you were born in your sins. And you're trying to teach us. And then notice that phrase. They cast him out. Jesus heard, verse 35, that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Then Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. And then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Verse 39. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you'd have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. Most assuredly, I say to you, in chapter 10, is, continues a conversation that Jesus is having with some of these religious rulers. You see, this man that was blind, that was healed, did not bring much joy to the religious rulers. They didn't like 
that Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. That they valued their own man-made religion over and above the heart of God. You see, Jesus broke their man-made traditions on purpose. And they were so infuriated, they were so angry that they took it out on the blind man that was healed. And let me just say, that happens to the follower of Jesus Christ. People get so mad at God, they get so infuriated with Jesus Christ that they take it out on his followers. Don't be surprised if you don't find that part of the persecution that you face is actually an outgrowth of someone's anger toward the one true God. And and it comes to you because you are close in proximity, because you stand for what's right, because you take a stand that's based upon the scriptures and upon your relationship with the one true God. And yet because of that, what happens? Well, John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus said, in this world, you will suffer tribulation. In this world, this world is hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the culture and the system that we're in is hostile to followers of Jesus Christ. And time and time again, we're surprised that it gets taken out upon us, but we shouldn't be surprised because just like this man, I mean, really, what this guy do? What exactly did he do except receive a healing? He hasn't done anything, but they take it out on him and they kick him out. They excommunicate him. But understand in the first century, excommunication wasn't simply you couldn't attend this synagogue or you couldn't attend this church. Excommunication in the first century was a removal of every piece of identity that a person would have. You see, of all the mistakes that were made in the first century, there were still some things that weren't mistakes. And that is the worship of God was the center of life for the follower of God. Every, it, was like, it was like the hub in a wheel and all the spokes of life came in and out of worship. It's not like that so much anymore. It's, it's like pastors, we have to beg and plead with the body of Christ to make God the center, to make sure that he's the focus, that your decisions are flowing from his spirit, led by his spirit. But instead, so many other things distract and take away And no longer do we find ourselves so passionately seeking first the kingdom of God. And I think Jesus knew that because he taught us that. He said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. I think that's a word from God to some right now. That as you go to and fro and you're upset and you're you're concerned, the answer of God is to seek him first and foremost. So for a guy to be cast out, For a guy to be kicked out, if you will, was to lose everything. To lose family, friends, possessions, identity, career. And I love this though, because his casting out set the stage for the work of Jesus. Because as it says in verse 34, he says, they cast him out. And then verse 35, when Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, I like that. When he had found him, that, in, that implies that Jesus went looking for him. He heard that he was cast out and then he went looking for him. That is a solid principle of God. Jesus loves to reach the unreachable. 
you know, it's unfortunate we even use that word unreachable because it's just another label. You know, we live in a culture that loves to label and then once someone is labeled, they can always be in that category. However, we do understand that there may be people in our lives. I mean, if you think about it right now, you think about, are, are there people in your life that you can think of that you would consider unreachable? that you have shared, you have tried, and, and yet their lifestyle, their decisions, their influences, it almost causes you to lose heart a little bit. And so I don't know if it's ever going to happen. I want it to happen. I don't know if it's going to happen. And they're in that category of unreachable. And we happen to be a part of a family of churches known as Calvary Chapel. It's not exclusive to us, but the very genesis and beginning of this movement of churches around the world started with God reaching the unreachable, a group of people that have been written off by society. You know, today we know them as the hippies. Some of you may have been hippies. Praise God that God reached you. I was born a little bit later, so I didn't have the chance to be a hippie. But I was, my own unreach I was in my own unreachable state myself. They wrote a book not too, you know, not too long after the beginning of the Calvary Chapel movement about some of the pastors, and the book is entitled Harvest. And the subtitle on the book is this, and I quote, gang members, drug addicts, mental patients, society's rejects. The amazing story of Calvary Chapel and the unlikely leaders God has called. And what a, great, what a great God we have that is going after the unreachable. Those that have been neglected, those that have been written off. Of course, that's my personal testimony. It may not be your personal testimony, and if it's not, don't feel bad about that. You've just, you just skipped out on a lot of pain and sorrow from the consequences of sinful decisions. I wasn't so fortunate. I made a lot of sinful decisions that I suffered a lot of consequences with. Very difficult and challenging. And there were, sure, I'm, so, I'm sure there were some, maybe my guidance counselor, a few of my teachers, perhaps my parents at times, that would look at me and go, ah, I don't know about that guy. I don't know what's going to happen with his life. There were even a few times as I examined my own life. I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen with my life. I, I was the kind of, I gave up on myself. But there were many people that didn't give up on me. And there were many people that prayed for me. You know, you guys at Redemption Hill, I would have never met Pastor Steve had my buddy that I grew up with not invited me to that particular church at that particular time. When you think about the sovereignty of God putting all these pieces together, it's amazing. And I just love this. Don't miss this because it gives the backdrop of chapter 10 as Jesus begins to teach us about the shepherd. When he heard this guy was cast out, he went looking for him and he found him because God finds those that need to be found. In each generation, God has reached down to the guttermost, as D.L. Moody once said, to change and transform lives. And I'm glad he did and I'm glad he does. And I'm glad he still will today. Jesus isn't done. The work of reaching out to the lost, to the hopeless, to the hurting, to bring them into a real relationship with him is what he's doing even right now. As he's speaking to the Pharisees, notice what he says now. Pick up with me in John 10, verse 1. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold 
by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Mark that word in verse 1, if you like to, circle that word sheepfold. Sheepfold is a familiar picture to those that were listening to Jesus. The sheep and shepherds were very prominent in the first century, still very prominent in many ways in Israel today. Much of society then was made up of sheep and sheepherders. Of course, that's kind of an unfamiliar picture for us, but I'm grateful that we can unpack it and understand that between the relationship of a shepherd and a sheep is very sweet and beautiful. We've learned already in Psalm 23 how the shepherd owns us. And because of that, he's responsible for us. And because of that, he takes care of us. And because of that, he feeds us and protects us and takes care of us. And because of that, at times, he makes us to rest. And he's there with us even in the most difficult of times, like like the valley of the shadow of death. And he is our shepherd and we are his sheep. This is not an unfamiliar picture to those that Jesus is teaching. It's all throughout the Bible. Jesus would teach at the level of his audience, using language and illustrations that would make sense to them. And whether you're a teacher or a mom, whether you're a leader or a dad, whatever responsibility you have just as a believer in Jesus Christ, remember this. The the discipline of teaching is not coming off as some good teacher, some super smart teacher, and like, oh man, that guy, he knows all the theology and all the words. That, that is not the level of teaching that changes lives. The level of teaching that changes lives is what Jesus demonstrates. He uses, he makes something that's so complex, so simple that anybody could understand. Now, of course, at the end, it says at this place, they don't understand, but the problem with that them, the Pharisees not understanding is they didn't want to understand. They didn't want to receive this truth. You know, one of the definitions for discipleship and teaching in the Hebrew is this phrase, cause to learn. Like, it's the teacher's responsibility that those listening would receive and be instructed and actually learn that it's our responsibility to rearrange, to know the theology behind it, to know the Greek, to know the Hebrew, and arrange it in such a way that when we deliver it, like Jesus, I mean, Jesus goes, hey, look at the flowers. And you go, I know flowers. And then what do you do? Hey, look how, God, look how good God takes care of you. Look at these flowers. Solomon had better clothes. Solomon didn't even have better clothes than the flowers. And he was able to take something complex and make it super simple. He uses the phrase sheepfold. Picture in your mind, I know it's hard to to think. I haven't seen a sheepfold in a while. I've seen one in Israel, but it's been a while. But I'll give you a description. Ready? It was a round enclosure about six feet high. So I stand about six feet high. So a six feet high round enclosure where different shepherds would bring their sheep in at night to sleep and to rest. So there would be a mingling of different sheep. The door was simply an opening. There was no gate to it. And once all the sheep were gathered together, the caretaker would lay down in that opening so that he became the door. No one, no sheep could get in and out without going through that door. Now, of course, there is those that were thieves and robbers. So, so no one could go in 
rightfully. Like, like Jesus is saying there is a right way and a wrong way when it comes to the sheepfold and coming in and out of the, of the pen of the sheepfold. There's a wrong way where the thieves and the robbers would come in, but the right way was through the door. And no one can get out, come in or out through going through the caretaker, which was the door. When morning would come, the shepherds would return to get their sheep by simply calling out their sheep by name. And in, in a wonderful way, the sheep knew their own shepherd's voice and followed him. And you know, it's throughout the Bible, this picture of the shepherd is used to describe God's relationship with his people. Just jot it down. In Micah chapter 2, verse 12, it says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I'll surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold. We've learned already, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. Psalm, 50, um, Psalm 95, verse 7. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice. Same symbolism. And this one is even uh, memorialized in a song that we sing. Our song goes way back as we think about people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Isaiah chapter 40, in verse 11. Speaking of God, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. Even here within the body of Christ, when God is looking to instruct and train men and women that are going to oversee the flock, when he's looking for men to pastor and shepherd the flock, he uses the picture of shepherd and sheep. You can jot it down, maybe read it for homework in Ezekiel chapter 34. In Ezekiel chapter 34, God is not only seen as a shepherd, but he also commissions the leaders of Israel to be good shepherds themselves. And he condemns in Ezekiel 34 those leaders that were not caring for the flock and were bad shepherds. Because good shepherds reflect the goodness of God. And bad shepherds, and I guess you could say we're not really shepherds because there's only one shepherd, the good shepherd, that we would be under shepherds. And we use titles like elder and pastor and deacon and deaconess. We would be the under shepherds. Good shepherds represent the good graciousness of God. Bad shepherds misrepresent God and hurt people. They're thieves and robbers that don't do it the right way and that choose to take advantage of the flock, as we'll see in a moment. So the shepherd enters through the door. Jesus, as he speaks to the Pharisees, is not merely giving us an illustration of shepherds and sheep. Instead, he's theologically teaching the religious rulers of that day that had made man-made traditions more important than God. He was teaching them that the new covenant has arrived, that Messiah Savior of the world has come. You see, a man in chapter 9 has just been kicked out of society by the religious rulers. For what? He didn't do anything. He simply received a healing. It wasn't his disobedience. It wasn't his rebellion. It was the anger and furiation of the leaders of the day. They were mad at Jesus. They kick him out. He's just been kicked out and Jesus comes to the rescue as a picture and a type of Jesus coming to the rescue of all of humankind, all men, women, and children. Jesus is saying in a very real way, 
I came through the door. I came through the door, not like a thief, not like a robber, because I was born under the law. Later we'll learn Jesus fulfills the law, the only one ever, God in human flesh, to completely keep the law. You can jot it down in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus Christ was born under the law and completely kept the law. So he's teaching the Pharisees, they have an opportunity just like the blind. See, the the blind man was blind physically and spiritually. The Pharisees, they don't think they're blind, but they're blind as blind can be. The sheepfold here was Judaism. Notice in John chapter 10, verse 16, the sheepfold was Judaism. In verse 16, Jesus teaches, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Well, who is this other sheep? Who are these other sheep? These other sheep are none other than Gentiles, non-Jewish believers. Today there are three distinct people groups on the earth. Just three. Three distinct people groups on the earth. The first people group are known as the Jewish people, those that are Jewish. The second people group are known as Gentiles. That refers to everyone that's not Jewish. But there's a third distinct identity on the earth today, people group, and that is known as the church. And the church is made up of redeemed Jews and Gentiles. When you and I are born again, we gain a brand new identity, first and foremost. We are, as the Bible says, new creations in Christ. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And how I wish as a pastor, and as a fellow believer, you would begin to more and more identify yourself by your identity in Christ more than anything else. I find this, I find this to be a great deficit in many people that struggle with sin. I find that they identify themselves by their struggles instead of identifying themselves by Christ. I find this to be a great difficulty uh, for people that have been hurt in the past, where they identify themselves by their pain or their past hurt or what's happened to them before instead of identifying themselves in the healing power of Jesus Christ. I especially see this as a challenge for those that are struggling in addictions where they just feel like they'll never get out from under it and they identify themselves by their addictions instead of by the power of Jesus. You see, when you were born again, listen, when you were born again, you were adopted into the family of God. You are now a new creation. The power of God resides in you. Now you follow Jesus, the Bible says, that always leads us into victory. Always. Never a time when you follow Jesus that he doesn't lead you into victory. That you live in victory. You fight from victory. And if addiction is your issue today, God has sent me to remind you of your identity in Christ. It happened not too long ago, right before we had to go all online. After our services, we invite people up to pray, and a brother came up, and I could see on his face there was a little timidity, a little concern, and he wanted me to pray for him because he's had a lifetime of addiction, but he wanted to let me know that he was four days sober, 
four days sober. But the way that he communicated it to me wasn't just, he wasn't super excited about it. I could sense more of a fear that it wasn't going to last. So I'm just four days and, and, I'm, and I'm like, I'm excited for him. And, and I was encouraging him, four days, that is amazing, four days. Four days of the power of God to keep you sober. Four days. It wasn't because, uh, and I told him this right here, right in front of the state. I said, it wasn't because you poured everything away. It wasn't because you decided. It wasn't because of your willpower. Four days sober is an amazing thing because day by day, moment by moment, the power of God has kept you from something that you really want to do. Not only do you really want to do it by habit, but your body's crying out for it. And yet God has shown himself strong. But not only that, at the end when I prayed for him, I put my hands on his shoulders and I looked him in the eye and I said, look, four days is monumental in your life. You have four days of sobriety that you've never had before. And for me in the power of God, I looked him in the eye and said, I've been sober for 29 years by the same power of God. Because days become weeks and weeks become months. Months become years, years become a lifetime, a lifetime becomes a legacy. How? By the power of God. That we identify ourselves more than anything, more than where we were born, more than by our last name, more than anything by our identity in Christ. Because he is your string. And Jesus came on the scene to declare the new covenant. It's no longer a, by works, but it's by his finished work. And they needed to know that because they had strayed far from God. So far that they missed Messiah, the Savior. They, they studied, imagine this, they studied the Bible all day and night forever. They knew all the prophecies about Messiah. They knew all the insights of Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. And then Jesus comes on the scene and they miss him. They're standing right in front of them. And they knew the word, but didn't know the God of the word. And that's always a tragedy. Because when we are in the word, we're learning the voice of our Savior. And it's so sweet. Notice, come back to John 10 with me. In verse 3 again. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out, verse 4, his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Now it's, it's neat because later on in verse 9, Jesus declares that he's the door. So no one's coming in and out of salvation. Nobody's going to be saved without going through the door. You can't hop the fence and you can't make your own way and you can't make up your own religion in order to be saved. Jesus declares later on in John 14 that he is the way, the truth, and the life and nobody comes to the Father except through him. You don't come through a pastor and you don't come through a priest and you don't come through a man-made religion. You don't come through a, an extra book or an extra teaching. Only Jesus is the door and you come in through him and the blood that he shed for you and for me. He was sent by the Father. He's Messiah. This is it. And meanwhile, as he's the true shepherd, and this is where things get difficult, as he's the true shepherd, there are those other shepherds, he's talking to some of them right now, that are thieves and robbers and are taking advantage of the people of God. 
By the time Jesus came on the scene here in the first century, the religious system of Judaism was deeply corrupted. Oh, it wasn't that the worship of God was corrupted, because God is never corrupted, but man messed it up by creating their own systems. Even the high priest of this time, his family was from the sect of the Sadducees. And the Sadducees didn't even believe in the supernatural. They were only in it for the buck. They were materialists. And they were very, very wealthy. And how did they get wealthy? On the backs of the people, taking advantage of the people. They learned to profit, not P-R-O-P-H-E-T. They learned to profit, P-R-O-F-I-T, off the people's desire to worship, which is one of the most heinous sins that can be committed to take the desire of worship and to turn it into something you rip people off. And it's still being done today. And it's so sad and hurtful. They learned to profit off the people's desire to worship, setting up in the temple courts little booths where they controlled the selling of certified quote-unquote sacrifices. Imagine families from all the surrounding villages would make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem with their animal sacrifice, that they have raised or purchased for this, very, for, for this very time and they're ready to offer it in worship of God. But before they can get near to the priest, they have to have their, uh, their animals inspected. Oh, and guess what? Nobody's animal ever passed. Unclean, not good. I'm sorry, I know you traveled all this way and I know you can't go back. I'm sorry, you will not be able to offer this animal. But... Right over here, we have some animals for purchase that are already pre-approved. And of course, the prices were jacked up and they would then give the unclean animal no purpose for that. They'd go and buy. And as they went over to buy a certified animal, oh, I'm sorry, but the money that you have from your little village, that's not good here in Jerusalem. But guess what? Over on the other side, we have tables set up with men there that are ready to exchange your money. Oh, for a modest fee or an immodest fee. And remember, the money changers so infuriated Jesus in a righteous, sinless anger that that's the place where he flipped the tables and said, hey, this is to be a house of prayer, not of merchandise. When God faces man-made religion, you can see that there's a holy, righteous anger of people being ripped off and taken advantage of. This was religion in the first century. This is what will tell a man that was made, given sight, that was blind and given sight to get out. The greatest miracle, I wonder if even some of these religious rulers prayed for him, perhaps. I mean, they thought it was his fault, of course, so they had no empathy, no love, no care, no concern. It's a sad state when you wander away from God. And when you seek to serve God in your own strength, in your own wisdom, and your own understanding. These guys misrepresented God. And Jesus says the real shepherd, in verse 3, the real shepherd calls out to his sheep and they hear his voice. There's just something about the shepherd's voice that makes all the other voices sound hollow and empty. Somehow sheep were trained to hear the call of their own shepherd. I think it was just by proximity and care and concern. Where uh, those of you that have pets, you realize, you know, the pets will get along with others, but they really love you. They really care for you. They really know you. And they know your voice. 
And I see that as an illustration for us, as the Word of God trains us how to hear the voice of God. Because that's a big question. How do I know, Ed, whether you're, what you're saying is true? And how do I know what they're saying is true? And how do I know? Well, the Word of God gives us the voice of God. The Word of God. And you want to know the voice of God. Do you want to increase your ability to know the voice of God today? Read the Bible. Just read the Bible. Because the Bible not only gives us the words, like for example, if you read chapter 9, it would be a true story of a blind man who was given sight and the, guy, the religious rulers kicked him out and then Jesus started teaching. If that's all you got out of it, that is the facts. But to those that have spiritual eyes, you not only get the facts when you read the Bible, but the Spirit of God gives you the intent of the heart of the matter. This is, God's heart is to seek the unreachable. God's heart is not just to give sight to the blind, but to save souls. And you learn of the heart of God. You learn that God doesn't manipulate. He doesn't guilt. He, he doesn't cast out. He, he doesn't push away. No, what do you learn? You learn that he speaks and he leads and we follow. He saves. You want to know, you want more training? Read the Bible a lot more. The more you understand the Bible, the more you'll be able to understand immediately the frauds and the fakes that only want to rip you off. Jot this down in Luke chapter 6, verse 40. I love this. Luke 6, 40, Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And the training comes from the Word of God. When you know the Word of God well, then you would then compare what I say, what your pastor and leader says, by what the Word of God says. You would take it and say, I heard what he said. Does the Bible say that? And does the entirety of the Bible say that? Does that Greek word really mean that? Is that the context of the time and the place? Is that what God intended? And the more you're in the Bible, the more you understand the shepherd's voice, the character and the nature of God. Not only that, another thing that blesses me here in verse 4, well, really in verse 3, it says he calls his own, so that reminds me of my relationship with him, the shepherd's responsible for me, so he's going to take care of me. He's going to watch out for me. And then he leads them out, notice in verse 3. And then in verse 4, he brings out his own sheep. And notice he goes before them. The sheep follow him. That's the order. The shepherd goes ahead. The shepherd leads. And we have a simple response. We follow the leader. That's it. We follow the leader. And the leader is very clearly our shepherd. You see, I'm not your shepherd. And your pastor is not your shepherd. Together, we follow the shepherd. We're just under shepherds. We're just servants. We follow the good shepherd, as we'll learn later on in John chapter 10. We follow him, and we follow him together, and we help one another along the way. To me, it's a blessing to read that our shepherd goes before us. And that gives me a couple things. Number one, it's comforting to know that whatever I walk into, Jesus has already been there. He knows about it, and it's no surprise. He's already gone out before. You know, as he was looking for those pasture lands and still waters, he goes before me. I love what Psalm 139 verse 5 says. It says, you have hedged me behind and before, and you've laid your hand upon me. My shepherd, he goes before me. 
And secondly, it's a blessing to know that Jesus won't push me, drive me, or beat me. (laughs) Won't take advantage of me as his sheep. He leads me. He calls me. He invites me. I hear his voice. But he doesn't treat me like cattle. He doesn't push me, make me, prod me, guilt me. Our good shepherd leads. And every leader in the church, every mom and dad, every aunt and uncle, all of us in positions of leadership, we are the most effective when we lead by example. It's not, leadership is not barking orders. Leadership is not doing our own thing. Leadership is not telling someone to do something that you haven't done first yourself. We are most effective in leading for Jesus when we lead people by example, in saying and doing As Jesus taught us, letting our yes be yes, with no exceptions. Sheep, Jesus says, don't know the voice of strangers. It's not that they don't, it's not like we don't hear the voice of strangers. I mean, imagine where we've been right now uh, in the last many, many weeks, quarantine, stay at home. So now what happens? You read, this guy has a theory over here, this thing over here, we got this thing over here, I got my own opinions, Aunt Mary has her opinions, every, I mean, voice after voice after voice after voice. But only one of those voices sounds like the Lord because only one of those voices is the Lord. And as we root ourselves in the word of God, we hear, it's not like you don't hear them. It's not like you can't hear them. Obviously, people are going to say things. You're going to see some on YouTube, on Facebook. It's not that you don't hear them physically. It's that you don't pay attention to them because it's not your shepherd. And that's a conscious choice you have to make. You have to hear, conclude that's not, that doesn't sound like God, and avoid them. And certainly on so-called Christian TV today, in man-made religions and cults, we, we hear what they're saying, but it's not the Lord. That's not the God of the Bible. It's not the Jesus that reveals. It's not the good shepherd. And so it encourages me that I'm not even responsible to, to, be, to, to sort out all the voices. I just need to listen for one. If I listen for one, I can follow my shepherd and leave all the false ones behind. Spiritually, Jesus is speaking to all these false teachers, which would be a great rebuke to those that were listening to him. These guys are robbers, they're liars, they're thieves. We have to be careful as we live in the last days, as we wind down here, because in the last days, we're warned. Hold your place in John. We really haven't moved anywhere. I've given you verses. Would you go back to the right in 2 Timothy chapter 4? Just turn back to 2. If you're on a tablet or a phone, just click it through. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, because Jesus gives, or excuse me, Paul gives young Timothy a very, very strong warning. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3, I'm reading from the New King James, he says, For the time will come when they, speaking of believers, will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. They're not going to hear the shepherd's voice. They're going to literally turn their ears away. But you be watchful in all things, verse 5. Endure afflictions, do the work of the evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Even here in the context of our own fellowship, I received a report from a brother recently that one of his co-laborers has not only left the place of leadership in their church, but, but he's also turned his back on God and renounced God and declared himself not to be a believer. 
You know, you know how painful that is to hear and how painful it was? I mean, I got on the phone right away and began to talk with this brother to encourage him because it's, it's hard enough in the ministry that he's in. And then it's doubly hard when his right-hand man steps away. And then it's triply hard when that man that he served with so many years denounces Christ. But we have found during this time of difficulty that all kinds of thoughts and things keep popping up and there's this temptation to walk away. But the Bible says that you and I have need of endurance and to keep hearing the shepherd's voice of how much he cares for you and loves you and takes care of us. These last days, they're not coming. We're there. Peter warned against it in 2 Peter chapter 2. Paul warned against it in Acts chapter 20. All around us, and we're seeing it happen. Today, there isn't just a lack of endurance, but there's an outright resistance to sound doctrine. There's a dumbing down of the Bible. In some cases, many churches don't even use the Bible anymore. They use someone else's book or someone else's teaching or their own opinions when we need the Word of God in our lives. And it's sad as a pastor to see so many false teachers ripping off the church. And it's also sad to see so few people really wanting to know the Word of God, really wanting to know what God has to say. But I commend you. I commend you here, I commend you there as a church family being hungry and thirsty for the Word of God that you would take in. And I I think it's a great encouragement to be a part of a church family. You, You don't really know how appetizing the Word of God is until you start eating it and feasting on it. And then you want more, you want more, you want more. As God introduces a new food into your life, you're like, I really like that. And then if he introduces a new food that you really don't like, but he keeps serving you, you're like, okay, I'll take it. If you want to serve me Brussels sprouts, all right, I'll take it. I don't want it all the time, but I'll take it. And maybe, 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 just maybe, you might develop an appetite for it along the way. But God, our shepherd, loves you. And maybe you're listening to me today and you've never You've never committed your life to following the shepherd. I want to invite you to do that today. So here I'm going to invite our worship team to come back, but I don't want you to leave. Because God, he is inviting you to follow him. He's inviting you to follow him just like here in the text. Yeah, it's unfortunate. It says in verse 5, They will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they don't know the voice of strangers, And Jesus used this illustration, but they didn't understand the things he spoke to him. But today, of all these years of not understanding, today God has opened your eyes. And he's instructed you to repent of your sins. That's the way out, friend. To acknowledge where you are in life. And to accept the free gift. See, Jesus, he came to institute a new covenant. That we don't approach God by our own religious works. We don't follow the rules of an organization, of a church. Of a, we, don't, we don't follow the rules to be saved. You can't. But you can come to Jesus. You can surrender your life to him. Do you know the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved? You know why? Because the Bible says with the heart one believes unto salvation unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And if that's you today, I want to invite you watching online, listening live on Grace FM on the radio right now, here in the room, wherever you might be, 
I want to invite you to follow Jesus Christ, to turn your life over to him, that God has even arranged and allowed all these circumstances in your life to get you to this point. And here we are together. What a sovereign privilege to be together today that I can share with you the good news of the gospel that through the finished work of Jesus Christ, your sins can be forgiven. So let me help you with the confession part. I want to lead you in a prayer where you, confess, you can confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Just talking to God. And you could say something like this. You ready? You can repeat this. Dear God, I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. I believe you sent Jesus Christ to live for me, to die for me, and I believe he rose again from the dead to save my soul. And I confess Jesus as my Lord and Savior today. And I'm asking you, God, to help me repent and turn away from my sinful past so that I can follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week. 